Welcome to Brain Slides, the presentation podcast for teachers, helping you present better to teach better. Welcome back to the Brain Slides podcast. This is Nathan Cashin, your host, and it's been a while. We're finally back. It's been difficult to get together and interview our favorite teachers and presentation designers, but I'm looking forward to bringing you some great content in the near future. First up is an interview that I conducted with Dr. David B. Miller at the University of Connecticut. A few months ago, I stumbled upon a YouTube video Dr. Miller created called Lecture Fail, PowerPoint and Keynote Misuse. I was thrilled. Here was an experienced professor explaining the downfall of bullet points and showing his version of elective of effective lecture slides using animation, sound, and other multimedia. I'll link to this video on brainslides.com slash blog, and you may just want to go watch it right now. I decided right then that I had to give get him on the podcast, and after a few exchanges via YouTube comments and emails, we met via Skype. Dr. Miller is a professor in the Department of Psychology at UConn. His main research interests are in animal behavior, for which he has a podcast series. The internet connection for our interview was a bit shaky, so the audio is not perfect, but I've done my best to clean it up. And the ideas and tips Dr. Miller shares are more than worth that trouble. Continue listening to hear how he uses the flipped classroom model by making his lectures available via podcast, how he evolved from hypercard to keynote, and what inspiration he has gained from the Star Wars movies. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining me today. It's uh, kind of been frazzled, kind of getting you all set up, but we finally got it worked out, so I hope this is going to work. If we drop the call, we're just going to restart and continue where we left off. But your YouTube video just piqued my interest. I was so excited to hear a professor who's been using you know, these techniques uh, talk about why to use them and how you use them. So what first made you think about changing the way you, you lecture in the classroom? Well, the first thing that I thought about in terms of the latest incarnation of my animal behavior course at the University of Connecticut is I was thinking that when you're giving a lecture, it's there at the moment and then it disappears instantly. As soon as you've said something, it's gone. And there's not a whole lot of opportunity to go back and do anything about it without losing a lot of time in the course of the semester. So I was trying to think of a way of changing that, a way that I could make the material accessible so that the student can control the access whenever they wanted to. And just by chance, when I got my first uh, iPod, which was a Nano, and I discovered uh, uh, podcasting. This was back in, I think, the fall of 05. I stumbled upon um, uh, Don, Don McAllister's podcast series out of the UK, Screencasts Online. I don't know if he changed the name of that. He may have. But he was using this. Um, is it still Screencasts Online? Okay, cool. I, I'm not, I, I never, since he changed it to a subscription thing, I did not pay his fee. So I only get, I only get the occasional free ones. But in any event, um, I noticed that he was using some amazing video pot, uh, software that I'd never seen before. So I wrote to him and I asked him, what are you doing to create those video podcasts? And he said it was screencast. 
uh, ScreenFlow rather. So I checked out ScreenFlow. At the time, it was not handled by Telestream.net, but it is right now. And I downloaded a copy and it all kind of gelled at the same time. I realized that what I wanted to do, I could do if I created these kinds of screencasts, that it would be very labor intensive, but it would give students full control over about 90% of the content of my course. It's not a full online course. It's a blended or hybrid course. So there's about 10% that takes place live in the classroom. And of course, all the exams are live in the classroom as well. But It enabled me to give them control over the content. They could pause, they could go back, they could do whatever they wanted with it, actually, and whenever they wanted with it. So with that in mind, I decided to recreate the entire course. And, uh, you know, it's been great. I haven't looked back since. The results in in terms of students learning in this course has been absolutely amazing. But interestingly... There's an evolutionary history behind what I've done most recently because I created a multimedia self-paced course back around 1995 using a now extinct software package called HyperCard. Do you remember HyperCard? I played with it a little bit on my mom's Macintosh Classic way back. She was a teacher and that's what she had. Um, And I remember either she or someone built... Spanish flashcard, kind of a vocabulary game, yeah, and I would do yeah. it all the time. She's a Spanish teacher in high school. Uh, that was pretty much my only experience with HyperCard. Well, at the time, it was great because you, there was a very simple programming language uh, that Apple created called HyperTalk. So I learned that language, and I created a whole course based on um, HyperTalk and HyperCard platform. And basically, it was the entire course using that uh, whole system. Uh, But the problem was there was no networking at the time at the University of Connecticut. And of course, these were the early days of the Internet anyway. So the students had to sign up for work time on one computer, meaning I could only have eight students in the course in any given semester. Oh, wow. Yeah, we are a very large university. We have 1,600 majors right now in our department. And so there was no way that we could continue to do that. So we had to abandon that. I continued with HyperCard uh, for a lecture platform of the course. And that worked okay. Uh, And then ultimately PowerPoint. And PowerPoint has never handled multimedia very well. I don't advocate using bullet points, uh, but swapping in as much multimedia as possible. I struggled with PowerPoint until Keynote, Apple's Keynote, finally came out with a version that would allow me to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do. And that was around 2006. And I haven't looked back since. I switched to Keynote, recreated the entire course in Keynote. And then, of course, in 2009, transferred that into a new version incorporating ScreenFlow. So that's kind of where we were and where we are right now. So you actually started changing because you wanted to um, put your lectures online rather than use them in the classroom? Correct. So that's kind of, so are you kind of uh, implementing this flipped classroom model that's really popular now with Khan Academy? 
It is. You know, I, I never came upon the term at, at the term flipped classroom at the time I was doing this, but I came upon it maybe about, I don't know, six or eight months ago. Someone mentioned it to me and I see it's, it's being used more and more in education and people like, you know, Khan, who's doing Khan Academy and many, many others are now incorporating their versions of that with the same kind of idea of what I've been doing of giving content control to the students and using classroom time for more productive purposes. Yeah, it's really, the flipped classroom idea has really become popular since Khan Academy. He himself acknowledges that there are many people that have been doing it before him. And so it's great to meet you who, who started a few years before anybody really heard about it. But I, that's so fascinating to me that you s started with you know, recording your lectures. Most people find a book like Presentation Zen or Slideology, and they start redoing their lecture slides and doing them in the classroom. But you started with ScreenFlow. Yes, I did. Well, I actually started with uh, Keynote, but even that goes all the way back to uh, HyperCard in terms of trying to advocate the use of more multimedia and less words on screen. So I actually started that back in the 1990s Gave, gave, even gave um, uh, uh, workshops on that to faculty and graduate students because it never seemed to me very productive to put a lot of words on screen where students would just sit there and blindly copy things and not listen to a word you're saying. And then, of course, that intensified with PowerPoint and all of the bullet points that make it so easy to transfer your lecture notes into nothing more than a bunch of bullet points, which then leads to what I call... PowerPoint karaoke, where the professor simply reads what's on the screen to the students, which is a total waste of time and is a, an invitation to get the students as disengaged from wanting to be in class as possible. So, you know, I've kind of been on this bandwagon for quite some time and therefore have been a strong advocate of the use of multimedia. So in your video on YouTube, you show kind of a before and after. And the before example is the usual PowerPoint slide. But you weren't actually making slides like that. So you just use that as the example of what everybody does. Yeah, you know, in that example, I use that. Uh, I will do that for my own purposes sometimes. If it's a really complicated research study that I want to translate into a multimedia form that the students end up seeing, I want to make sure that I have it laid out in my mind properly. So I go from storyboarded notes in some cases that I just scribble on a piece of paper. And I think I show that in that particular uh, YouTube clip. I go from that to bulleted points. But of course, students never see those bulleted points. That's just a reference for me to go ahead and use that as the basis to create what the students end up seeing, which is, in fact, nothing more than the multimedia portion of the uh, of the class was there something that that made you realize that you shouldn't be using bullet points that that's not effective uh, is that something in your background or did you read it somewhere I you know I, I guess the only thing I can relate it to in my own background is I've sat through a number 
of PowerPoint presentations, off, most often given by administrators at our university. That's nothing more than bulleted points. And I am so incredibly bored sitting there and, and listening to that and watching that. And it's just, it's totally disengaging. And then, you know, I'm thinking translating that into what goes on in the class, how on earth could we continue to do this to our students? So it was, I guess, my own experience in having to suffer through these kinds of things. Well, I completely agree, and thank goodness uh, I'm headed back to graduate school, and I just visited and sat in on some classes, and that's all it was, was bullet point slides, and most people don't make that jump, make that leap of, well, these are boring, what else can I do? They just keep doing what it is, so that you're way ahead of the curve to have just made that decision on your own. That's pretty pretty fascinating. Thank you. So... What does it look like, or kind of what's your workflow? You've mentioned that you make notes, then you put bullet points, and then you start making more animated slides. What's that like? Uh, it's very time intensive, and that's what scares people away, unfortunately. So, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, first of all, I don't even use a textbook in either of my courses. My courses are general psychology one, which is a big course, 315 students per semester. Animal behavior is my specialty area. That's my research area. Even that's a big course, 140 to 150 students per semester. So we're dealing with large classes here at the University of Connecticut. And um, I just basically start by scrapping the textbook because I find them to be inaccurate, very, very expensive. I don't refer to them in class because I've always made up my own lecture material and I never saw that they were doing students any good. So when I decided to scrap the textbooks, I decided, okay, so I'm going to have to really ramp up now what goes on in lecture. So I try to make my lectures primarily research-based. So I'm always, always looking at what's going on right now in research that relates to uh, general concepts that I do want students to know about that have been around for a long time, but also how these general concepts are evolving and continue to evolve into the way people are viewing these things now based on what kind of research problems that people are asking right now. So what my goal, what I view as my goal, is to make this material digestible to freshmen because my general psych class is primarily freshmen. And so that's the challenge right there. And uh, the multimedia helps a lot. I should add, I also use a fair amount of context-relevant humor in my class. Now, it takes certain personality types to be able to pull that off, and not everybody can. But I think I can. My students tell me I can. I'm always delving into popular culture to, um, to grab these things, but they're always related to the point I'm trying to make. And they tend to be like a, an attention grabber. So I might show a, a South Park clip that's related to something that I'm about to say. And that grabs the student's attention. And now I, re I relate to what just happened in that South Park clip to the point that I'm about to make in, uh, in relation to some psychological principle or whatever. So, you know, that's part of the multimedia as well, the humor part of it, which, again, works very well for me. But I caution, might not work well for everybody. And so, you know, if someone wants to go that route, they should try it out a little bit first and see if they're able to pull it off. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like watching a stand-up comedian that's funny, trying to be funny, and it's the most pathetic thing in the world. And it's even worse if you're an educator trying to do something like that, and it simply doesn't work. 
I think it can be a learned skill. There's a, I listened to an interview with Dr. John Medina, who wrote the book Brain Rules, and mm-hmm. that was one of the inspirations for my site. And uh, he mentions the importance of story, pretty much exactly what you're talking about. Putting the details of what you're teaching into context, and a great way to do it is using humor. And he says that that's something that he's developed. He's taught himself how to tell stories. Uh, there's plenty of books out there, and I'm, I'm not a great tele- t- t- uh, storyteller, but I'm learning a little bit better how to tell stories. You know, I think it's something you develop over time. Reading a book about it isn't going to give you the practice. You, you just have to go ahead and try it, and you'll fall on your face from time to time. Fine. It's like riding a bike. You pick yourself up, and you get back on the bike, and you try again. And again, in some cases it works, in some cases it doesn't. That's great. So you mentioned that in the past you had done workshops with teachers. Do you still do that with Keynote? I do. Uh, With Keynote, I do also workshops on screencasting. Uh, I'm about to go to a conference, a national teaching conference in Florida, where me and my co-presenters are doing two workshops on um, the incorporation of multimedia. I'm focusing on podcasting and screencasting for my portion of these two workshops. And I, what is and the I, conference called? Oh, it's the National Institute on the Teaching of Psychology. I did a workshop there with a co-presenter last year on the same basic theme, but we're kind of ramping that up and revising it and making it a little, a, a little bit more advanced than we did last year, um, both uh, for, for two, two, two workshops this time uh, that focus on different aspects of this. Now you, so you record screencasts, and do you make those available to your students via podcast, via iTunes, or? Well, the way that we do the animal behavior screencast, which is really my primary screencasting um, uh, series right now, is with a password-protected site here at, on campus. Uh, uh, UConn buys into um, WebCT, uh, same as Blackboard now, they've merged, so... Uh, only students that are enrolled in the course have access to this material. This is something we had to work out with the attorney general uh, here at the uh, in Connecticut, but the the office of the attorney general at the University of Connecticut, because there's a lot of uh, copyrighted prote- uh, copyright material there that is fine to show in class, but not distribute over the internet. So we reached a balance where we thought that we'd be okay with this, but it had to be password protected in order to do that. So it's not available to the general public, but I do have a few clips here and there, uh, especially on YouTube, that I had to do recently for my general psychology class because we had a snowstorm and uh, they canceled classes and I didn't want to get behind. So while I stayed home because I couldn't get to the university with the snowstorm, um, I just recorded a screencast of that morning's lecture and I did upload it to YouTube. In fact, there's two of them from this semester because we canceled classes twice because of weather. So those are up there. They probably shouldn't be, but they are. <laughs> and uh, you know, what? Cop- I'm curious what the copyright issues are. If that is lecture content that you've created, or if it's other content that you are using. It's other content that I'm reusing. It's nothing to do with me. I don't. I don't copyright anything. So you don't copyright anything, but the university is concerned of material that you're using. That's correct, yeah. So they, they were concerned about that, and so that's why we keep it behind a password-protected wall. 
Okay. I bring that up because uh, in a discussion with David Wiley, who's at Brigham Young University, and he's one of the lead advocates for open education, putting everything out online. Uh, in his opinion, I don't know what the legal uh, foundations are for this, but the teacher owns the lecture content that they provide, not the school. So teachers mm -hmm. should have the right to post their own content. But, but I think it sounds like you're doing the right thing in that other content that you're using from other sources still is copyrighted and you do not have uh, the right to distribute that online. That's correct. So other than Screencast and Keynote, are there other tools or books that, you'll, that you've utilized that help you design your lecture slides? Well, so in terms of design, no, not really. I mean, the, the other multimedia uh, aspect uh, of my courses is podcasting, uh, which, and for the most part, they're audio podcasts, though part of my podcast series for general psychology, one does include two enhanced uh, podcasts per week, but there, it's a static component that, uh, so there's a visual component while I'm talking over that. And those are basically sneak previews of what's going to be some of the main points in the next lecture. So I like students to watch those before the next class and uh, it better prepares them for, for some of the main points at least that I'm going to be covering. And I, I've used Profcast in the past to create those. Very sadly, they've stopped developing that. I've been in close touch with the developer for a long, long time actually because I've used it for a long, long time. And uh, the problem is it's not compatible with Mountain Lion, the latest Mac system. So I have switched to doing this the longhand way in GarageBand. So it takes a bit longer, but uh, I'm used to it already. It's, um, I kind of like having that degree of control, but um, it, it does take a bit longer to create them than it did in, in ProfCast. But the, the reason your enhanced podcast? For the enhanced ones, yes. So do you mean if someone is using a iPod Touch, an iPhone, or, or even an iPod with the screen, so the iPod video, as they're listening to it at certain points, you can show an image. It can be a picture or it possibly could be a slide that you've created, and you put that in the audio file, and it shows up on the screen. Is that right? Yes. Uh, an enhanced audio podcast has a visual component along with it, and... Whenever you do that, a chapter a menu item appears if you're using this in iTunes on a computer. Uh, normally, there would not be a menu item called chapters, but it does appear automatically with an enhanced podcast. And so the chapter uh, menu item allows you to go to a particular chapter. You don't have to listen to it in order, though ultimately it makes more sense to listen to it in order. But you can go back. If you just want to listen to one part again, just find that chapter, and then you can just listen to that one part all over again. So it's kind of nice. And so you can access this on, of course, uh, any computer in iTunes, on any iPod device that has a screen, and uh, certainly an iPod Touch or an iPhone. And you can also do it on an iPad. Um, the new Apple uh, podcast app, uh, allows you to do that, though it's a little bit buggy with some of these enhanced podcasts, I've noticed. But more often than not, I'm, I'm usually able to get it to work. It might take a little bit of, uh, of uh, tweaking here and there to get it to kick in, but generally it does work fine. In any event, it works fine in iTunes on a computer. Are you considering uh, trying to get onto iTunes U? 
You know, our, our university uh, tried to work out a contract with Apple to get on iTunes U, but the attorney general's office was very uncomfortable with some of the wording, and so they decided they didn't want to sign off on that. Um, I've also been in touch personally with some of the folks from Apple uh, about uh, some of these issues, and there was a clause there that bothered me as well. And uh, actually, I don't even remember now what it was, but it was something that was ir- was irreconcilable. And uh, so, no, we're not on iTunes U. But as far as I know, I'm the only professor at UConn that really has a podcast series going, certainly anything like this. So we started this in 2005. Much to my surprise, we have a large international audience. I get emails from all over the world for different reasons. Some people are using it to improve their English, which puts a little bit more um, uh, focus on me to make sure I'm always grammatical or at least try to be a little bit grammatical. Um, it's, it's really kind of cool in that respect. But um, so, no, I'm, I'm just doing it myself. It's being uh, distributed by iTunes just as a normal podcast series, but not part of iTunes U. Yeah, iTunes U is something that the university has to sign up for and and there are lots of legal issues, so I've I've heard a lot of universities not wanting to jump on board just yet. Uh, since you don't use textbooks, have you? Do you have any feelings on iBooks and iBooks Author that are available for the iPad? I love it, but the problem is it's only accessible on iPads, and we cannot mandate that students buy iPads, so that automatically rules out trying to create something that way. If everybody had an iPad, I would absolutely love to jump in and and do something, but I can't. It sure is fun. I've been building some uh, for my job right now. It's really enjoyable to make them because you can add so much multimedia. Uh, It's fun to read them, but you're right. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has iPads, and you can export it as a PDF and have a lot of the same text content in the images, but all that multimedia gets lost. So hopefully in the future we'll have some solution that's cross-platform. Exactly. I mean, without the multimedia, for me, the whole reason to do it is the multimedia. And if that gets lost, which it does in the PDF, then okay, well, why bother? So podcasting is available for any type of device, Linux, Windows, iPod, iPhone, Android devices. So it's great that you have such a wide audience. And that's really cool that you get people from all over the world downloading and watching your videos. I even had one person write to me from Florida who was a psychiatric nurse who happened to be listening for whatever reason to one of my animal behavior podcasts, which is my other podcast series. And I was talking about a phenomenon that's common in, um, in certain species of animals. And he brought what I was saying to the attention of his supervisors, and long story short, they ended up re-diagnosing one of their patients' conditions based upon something that I said that happened to apply to mallard ducks, and <laughs> it was kind of strange, but uh, it was, I thought it was kind of cool that, that that actually happened, just as, a, just as a side comment that I made on this podcast that had that effect. Uh, with this particular patient. On the other hand, I don't know. I don't know what the ultimate outcome was. With but the, the patient wasn't a mallard duck. Uh, no, the patient was human, as far as I. Know. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, do you have advice for teachers who would like to change the way that they lecture? 
I think the best piece of advice and the one that I give in my workshops all the time is don't do the crazy thing that I did and do it all at once. It's very tough. But, you know, try a little bit here and there and see if it's going to work for you. I don't advocate everybody use technology. There are some people that should stay as far away from technology as possible because they're really good at what they do without using technology. But um, for those... I completely agree with that. I'm in organic chemistry and... The teacher just uses the whiteboard. There was one part where we're doing spectroscopy where he pulls up some PowerPoint slides and he admitted at the very beginning, I haven't changed these in years. They're awful. He had some PowerPoint animations zooming in and out and he said these are kind of hideous. But those were the only classes where I just completely lost focus and couldn't follow what he was saying. But once we got back to the whiteboard, it just works so much better. So there are there is some content that just works better analog. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the, the another point I make in my workshops. There's an awful lot of power in these things, which is why PowerPoint might be called PowerPoint. But, you know, it's so it's fun to start playing with these animations. But you always have to remember who your target audience is. And it really can interfere with learning if you have things zooming out every which way. And so you just shouldn't do it. Um, you do it for yourself if you want to see what it looks like. But get rid of it before you show it to anybody. Otherwise, you'll have the opposite effect of what you're intending. You will, as you pointed out, lose your audience really, really fast. And it's kind of hard to recognize that. I create lots of presentations, and I'm always just wanting... Just, just have that little urge to add some type of animation. And I have to kind of keep myself in check and just leave things as plain as I can. And when I watch, I don't, I don't usually present. I'm making these for other presenters. But when I watch them present, that is when I realize, oh, thank goodness I didn't create, you know, five animations in a row here and just left it plain. Because it would have taken time, it would have been distracting, and it just flowed so much smooth, more smoothly without it. The problem is the time, and that, that's what it, whenever I give a workshop, that's what people freak out about. I can tell they're freaking out about it. But um, you know what? I was inspired. Oh, I should have mentioned this. Um, <laughs> I was actually, this in. Okay. I was actually inspired by George Lucas uh, in terms of the time investment. I started buying laser discs. If you remember what laser discs are, they were like in between VHS and DVDs. And um, so I bought the entire set of the, the entire Star Wars movies in Laserdisc. At the time, there were only three, the original three Star Wars movies. But with Laserdiscs, that was the introduction of director commentary tracks because you couldn't do that on VHS. Used to it now on DVDs, but it actually began on Laserdiscs. So, yeah, I'm listening to George Lucas talk about a lot of the special effects in uh, one of the three Star Wars movies. I think it was The Empire Strikes Back. Strikes Back. And he, he pointed out a scene that took the special effects guys six months to create that occupied four seconds of screen time. And it was awesome because you didn't, when you looked at, you looked at the actual uh, movie, in no way would you know that it took that much time to create, and that's exactly the way it should be. The work that goes behind it should not distract from the message. And so with that as an inspiration, you know, it doesn't bother me that I could be spending, and I have spent, four hours on one 
uh, keynote screen. Uh, want to just to get it right and whatever animations I have there just to get it right that might occupy five to ten seconds of classroom time when I'm showing this in class. Uh, I don't mind putting the time in because I happen to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, forget it. It's, it's going to be a drag. But um, uh, I, whenever I end up spending that much time, and I don't even realize it at the time, I look up and it's four hours later. Um, but I, I always think back to what George Lucas was saying in, in that particular commentary track that, yeah, that's exactly the right thing to do. And that's exactly the same outcome that you should be expecting to get. I can understand that it's so difficult to um, to put in that amount of time, and I find it difficult myself. You know, after years of doing this, to be able to you know change a pow a bullet point slide into a visual slide, and it it takes a lot of effort, but it's but in the end, it it really is worth it, and you see the results as you mentioned the the improvement uh, or the the difference in your students and the way they react to it. Right. You know, it, it's a, it, the, I think the challenge is thinking in pictures, thinking visually instead of thinking in words. When I'm one of the slides I show in my workshops, uh, I have it, uh, the, I have in words at the top of the slide, my goal. And, and the, the point of the slide is my goal is to swap out text with multimedia. But, the words my goal quickly change into a picture of me for my and a picture of somebody hitting a soccer ball in past a goalie into the goal. And so you put those two together and you get my goal. And I don't even have to tell people that they see it instantly. As soon as that makes the transition from the words to the text, everybody seems to get it. So I think the trick is, is to think about this in the first place in terms of visuals. It also gets us around the problem of PowerPoint karaoke because you will now be talking about what is the multimedia on the screen and not any words that are on the screen. And that, that in and of itself will get students really engaged in what you're talking about. So you, maybe you recommend uh, picking one piece of a lecture and redesigning that? Yes. Uh, uh, like, for example, there might be some kind of thing you're talking about, just one thing you're talking about that you think might be enhanced by creating some kind of multimedia component to that. And that's where I would begin. I think that would be the best piece of advice and then see if it works. It might not work for you. Uh, and if it does, fine, then you can try some another one, you know, another one, another one and gradually build things up from that point rather than doing what I've done because to create my animal behavior course with ScreenFlow, forget what it took to recreate all of the keynote screens because I don't even know how long that took. That was forever. But going from that into ScreenFlow and then doing the editing, which really is the powerful point of ScreenFlow, that was, I did keep track of that. And that was 400 hours one summer to get that done. It's a lot of time. But what I like about ScreenFlow, and you can say the same thing about Camtasia, which is, I guess, is their main uh, competitor, is what you can do in post-production. And you cannot do that in a lecture. In a lecture, if you want to focus someone's attention to one thing on your screen, the best you can probably do is point your laser pointer to that. 
But in ScreenFlow, and I know you know this because it looks to me like you've used it from some of the stuff that you've produced, that you can actually, you know, zoom in. You can uh, have a, uh, a just a highlight right around the cursor of that particular spot. You can enlarge the part around the cursor. You can add text if you want to. You can add audio if you There's so much that you can do. And the thing I like about Telestream is that they keep updating this product and they're very, very responsive to uh, users who request certain changes. I've requested one or two, and I was delighted to see at least one of those be incorporated in a subsequent version of that. So they're really, really uh, very responsive to their users, which you don't see very often. I've been using it since version 2, ScreenFlow 2. We're now on version 4. Um, I think the biggest change was in version 3, from 2 to 3. They made a lot of great changes. And Good. for those listening, it's available at, is it telestream.net? And it's $99. You can also get it in the App Store, on the Mac App Store, if you've got Lion or Mountain Lion. And it is $99. They just had a sale over Thanksgiving where it was 69 And I was about to buy it, and I just forgot. So I missed that discount. But it is a really, really great application. And it does take a lot of time. I've... Uh, especially if you're a perfectionist like me, I will record a screencast and it's just not quite right or I sounded funny and so I go back. Uh, but once you get used to it, there's lots of techniques you can use to make the editing go much more smoothly. Just kind of stop when you make a mistake, start over from five seconds back and you really kind of do get the, the hang of it and it goes really quickly once you've got a little more experience. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right, uh, Nathan, because I remember one time I was doing all of this at home and I was in the middle of what turned out to be about a one hour screencast. And suddenly the doorbell rang. It was the UPS guy delivering. And so the doorbell is, <laughs> but I ended up, uh, I was far enough along at that point that I didn't have to start all the way from the beginning. Uh, I just knew how to edit that part in. And uh, it went very, very smoothly because the edit was unnoticeable in the part that was actually ultimately put into a quick time movie. Yeah, I definitely do not recommend starting over when you're recording a screencast because you, it just takes too long. Every time you're going to mess up, you need to kind of just accept that you're going to make a mistake every time. So get into the habit of, of, of pausing at points where you can make a cut. And again, it just takes some experience, some practice doing it over and over, and you'll learn how to do that. I agree. Well, this has been so informative. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of shocked that, you know, that you just started making slides without, power, without bullet points on your own. I've, I don't, you're the first person I've met that's done that. So, you know, props to you, <laughs> kudos. Um, where can people find you online? Do you have... A YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook? I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, most of it's crazy stuff. Uh, <laughs> lectures that I put up there happen to be part of the YouTube feed. But um, I'm, I'm also a musician, and so I have some crazy music-related stuff there. But, uh, you know, if people search for, I guess if they use this term, shadow 05005, they'll stumble upon me that way. Uh, if they just use David Miller, there's tons of David Millers out there, and that would probably not be the best way to find me. But that would be one way. Uh, my faculty website, but there's no materials there that are, are of any interest other than links to my podcast series. And both of my podcast series are available 
on iTunes. Uh, the one for my general psychology class is called IQ by C-U-B-E. And if they search under that and go to podcast, I'll, I'll pop right up there. And the other one is Animal Behavior Podcasts. But the, the main series is iCube. So that might be something people want to check out. Great. I will put links to that in our show notes on the blog and uh, in the iTunes description for this podcast. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining me on Brain Slides. It's been great. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to do this.